I'm going to test your memories. Uh, we showed a video similar to that about four years ago. As you've heard in the video, they've been doing this about 10, 11 years. And do you remember how much it said we spent on Christmas then and how much you spent on Christmas now? Yeah, that's a dumb question, isn't it? I didn't remember that until Chris said something to me. It exactly doubled. In four years, we now are spending double the amount on Christmas than we did then. I'm curious how that has impacted and affected our worship for Christ. For instance, we celebrated communion this morning. Communion is the unimaginable generosity of God towards us. And whatever you think about how we do it and what goes on and all those kinds of things, the promise of communion is that he will commune with us. Remember Matthew chapter 1 verse 23? The angels declare, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, which they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, say it together, God with us. He will commune with us. The birth of Christ, it's the why we celebrate Christmas. But we must ask ourselves the question, have we lost our way in our celebrations? Read an interesting story this past week. A woman woman who received a citation for the PA State Police for careless driving. She was caught driving down a railroad track. Her reason? She said it was the way her GPS advised her to go. Now, I know what you're thinking. Was there a bit too much to drink? Maybe drugs, mental capacity in question? It was none of that. She was just a GPS junkie that said, turn here, and she turned there. Now, as Christians, our GPS is what? It's this. It's the Bible. It's God's word. And you know, there's other kind of GPSs out there we can buy into. And I have to think and feel about our GPS during the Christmas season. Are we finding ourselves driving down a railroad tracks, which is where we're not supposed to be? Basic principle of Christmas. Christmas was designed to change the world. I mean, that's why we celebrate it. Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. Christmas was designed to change the world. It was a radical event designed to have a radical impact. Even a short reading of the book of Acts. We see these shifts in people's lives, in nationalities, in the Jews, the Gentiles, the poor, the healthcare needs. We see people dying for the cause. They lost everything to follow Jesus. When you read the Gospels, the first Christmas, it was scary, it was frightening, and it was chaotic. And even a simple reading of the New Testament, when you compare it to today, today we attend church, back then they were the church. And if we're to properly understand Christmas, we have to get this whole idea of worship right. Now, I pulled out a bunch of dictionaries this past week, and I finally found one I liked. It's from Webster's. However, it was 1828. No, I don't have it, but online you can get all kinds of dictionaries. But here's what it said about worship. 
Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Think about that. Extravagant love. We've been doing a study in James, talking about a choice, a decision, an action. Last week, we're called to love regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the people that God puts in our way, in our homes, in our places. And it's why we have community, because community helps us figure out how to love people we don't get along with. Amen? (laughs) Extreme submission. I mean, what we already know, according to James, is we're to choose joy when trials and difficulties come. He says we're to choose generosity. And James says, here's what God desires. But if you follow what you desire instead of submitting to his desires, you will be enslaved and it will bring death. And yes, there is physical death, but there is a spiritual death. There's an emotional death. There's a death to our souls. I was watching a a news item on suicide and suicide is just rampant in the United States today. And they're trying to figure out why. We know why. Now, the difficulty we face is that we live in a culture of consumerism. And that has invaded our lives and it's invaded our submission. This consumerism has invaded our love and it's invaded what we sacrifice for and to. Now, I ran across another definition, and again, there was no name attached to it, but uh, I pulled this out of a reading I was doing. Here's what it says. Biblical worship is the full life response, head, heart, and hands, to whom God is and what he has done. I like this definition because it talks about priorities. The priority we place on who God is in our lives. In the Old Testament, the word worship, there's one Hebrew word used a lot. It's used 172 times. Prominent theme in the Old Testament. New Testament, there's four key words. The most prominent is found 59 times. When you read the book of Revelation, do you understand that one of the key themes in Revelation is not the end times, it's worship. Every single scene we see in heaven is about worship. And I got to tell you, when people read that, it weirds them out. You know why? Because we reduce worship to an hour on Sunday morning. And we start thinking, is heaven really like sitting in a church service all our lives? But that's not what worship is. But even in our culture, because we're so consumer-driven, we further reduce it to music, arts, and preferences. I was in conversation with a man who attends a very large church. And their worship has paid professionals and they do all the staging, the lighting, and the smokes and everything else. And here's what he said to me, and I I quote. He said, I can't worship anywhere else. I know it's wrong. Listen to what he confessed to. He says, I know it's wrong, but every, every... Everything we do at our church is so high energy and driven. Every other place seems boring. Now, my response was, how can the majesty of God be boring? But see, we reduce worship to a set of experiences that moves our emotions rather than submitting extravagant love, extravagant submission to a God that we bow a knee to the audience of one. 
See, here's what we do. And let me use Israel as an example. Uh, it's part of our human nature. I'm going to do a very short history lesson. And we're going to start with Abraham. Anybody remember Abraham? It's a name we're familiar with. We don't quite know all the details. But we see God intervening in his life in Genesis chapter 12. Here's what God says. Now the Lord said to Abram, and later he's called Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. So you get the idea that he says, I want you to go somewhere. I'm going to tell you along the way. I will make you a great nation. He had no kids at this point. I will bless you and make your name great. He was a nobody at this point so that you will be a blessing. And then here's the mission. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families, all the nations, some translations say, of the earth shall be blessed. So the original intent of Abram's call was to be a mission to bless the entire world. Now, you and I cannot imagine how ridiculous this sounds to a man with no people in the middle of nowhere with no kids. And he was told to bless the world. In his day, people did not bless each other. Nations conquered and enslaved and plundered each other. I mean, this was way out there. And what was further way out there, God says, listen, I'm going to make this great nation. Later on, he says, listen, I'm going to be your God. You're not going to have kings. You're not going to have princes. You're going to follow me and me alone. But guess what happened with Israel? They wanted to be just like everyone else. And so they begged God to have a king. And that king got them into a whole lot of trouble. Why? Because what do kings do? They conquer and they build instead of blessing. Now, they still had this whole God thing going on in their lives. But you see, they added to their existence a king because they wanted to be just like everyone else. Now, remember also up to this point, after they were enslaved in Egypt, they came out. God lived where? He lived in a tent. It was portable, tore down every day, but that's where God existed. And along comes a king, and the king says, you know what? We need to build God a house. Why? Because kings like building things. In fact, they build themselves palaces, so they said, God needs a bigger palace than us. When you read scripture, God didn't want a temple. He was happy living in a tent. But no. They said, we want to build you a spectacular palace because you're an awesome God. So God makes this deal. He goes, listen, as long as you worship and honor me, I will live there. But if you forsake me, that place will be torn down and stones will be scattered down the mountain. And history bears this out. It happened when Babylonian captivity came in and destroyed the place. It happened later on when it was under Romans' influence. But it was Solomon who was considered the wisest individual in a time of peace that built this original temple. But what happened? Well, we find this in 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Isn't it interesting that Pharaoh, who enslaved them, now he is marrying Pharaoh's daughter? Which the Lord had said, and by the way, this isn't exactly one through eight. I've took some sections out, so we're just kind of skipping down through. Which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, 
Why? For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon didn't listen. Solomon clung to these in love. And it says he had 700 wives. And then it goes on with a list of gods he started building temples for. And here's what it says in the last part of that. And his wives turned away his heart, for Solomon went after, and again, list of gods. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Yes, he built the temple, but what else did he do? And imagine this picture in Israel this day. He had 700 little mini God temples laying all over the city. Yes, God had the biggest house. But there was all these little additions that they tied into. And so we have this picture of God's temple all around and other little God temples all around. Now looking at Christmas in the original tent. Have we forgotten about Christ? I say no, we haven't. But the question I ask myself this season is, have we cluttered up Christmas with little God temples of consumerism? And they're all around. And they take away our love. Take away our radical submission from the God who says there is only one God. See, biblical worship is the full life response of our head, what we think, of our heart, and our hands, what we do to who God is and what he has done. Now, if we learn anything from the Old Testament, there's a couple of principles I want to get into. Here's the first, is that worship is a non-negotiable priority. God in the Ten Commandments says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first. God has this exclusive soul authority because no one can compare to him and there is no one like him. Amen? So in the Old Testament, worship is this non-negotiable priority. We worship because we are followers of Jesus. Secondly, we're designed for worship. We're created by him and for him. We're created in his image. If you didn't know that, you were made in his image. So, Do not live according to someone else's image of you. When you do that, you lose worship because you're saying that person and their idea of you and their pressure of you and everything they want you to do is more important than how God sees you. I got news for you. How God sees you is how he made you. Now, there's a few of us that do crazy things every once in a while. We, we take things that aren't supposed to be used for what we use them for. I remember living back at our last place, and I had a series of really big bushes I had to pull out. And I tried digging them out and everything else, and they wouldn't come. So what do I do? I get my car, and I drive it around back and hook a chain to it. And I took the chain to the bush, and I start pulling these bushes out with the car. Was that what the car was made for? No. And what do you think happened? Let's just say I had to fix the car after I was finished. I did get the bushes out because I'm stubborn. (laughs) See, and think about this with Christmas. And think about this with gift giving. And think about this with celebrations. We have this cancer comparison in our culture. 
We want to live up to another's expectation and image. When you do that, you lose worship because remember I said before, you cannot please everyone. I mean, we know that, but you can please God. I mean, that is a radical thought. So stop trying to please everyone. See, the question is, who or what is going to define my worth? What you choose to worship is what you will draw value from. So if you're going to worship fully, you're going to draw value from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who loves you with an everlasting love. If you choose the other little gods, you will be forever frustrated because you will never live up to their expectations. And they will disappoint you and you will disappoint them. We're designed for worship, which means we will worship something or someone. And what we worship will grip our lives and our emotions and our hearts and our minds. I read a very provocative story this past week. Andy Stanley Jr., not his dad, but the son, was in China. And he wasn't there to preach. He wasn't there to meet churches. But he was touring an American-owned leather goods factory. the, The owner happened to be a Christian. And so they had a group of employees on the tour. They came back in the office and the owner asked, does anyone have any questions? And this 20-something lady raised her hand and she looked at Anley and said, are you a pastor? Now, he was not introduced as a pastor. He had no idea if it was okay to be a pastor there. He had no idea where this was coming from. She could have been a plant, finding out if there's an American pastor there. He could have been arrested, all these kinds of things. But he looked at her and said, yes, I'm a pastor. And then next, in broken English, she said this, how good is good enough? I recognize your voice. Now, if you know anything about Andy, it was a few years ago, he produced a booklet, not a book, but a booklet called How Good is Good Enough. And so she had, and here was her story. Two years ago, she said, someone gave me a CD of your sermon, and I listened to it over and over again. Then I asked Jesus to save me and live in me. Before I was empty, now I'm full. And she went on that she wanted to go to church, but there was none in her city. Imagine that. She had no place to go to church. So she attended a Bible study in the next city. It took her two hours on the bus, and the ticket was expensive. Then looking at her boss, she said, can I ask the pastor another question? And the boss nodded. And then she said this, pastor, Why doesn't everyone in America go to church? And then he said, how do you explain thousands of empty churches to a young lady who rides a bus for two hours and pays a large part of her salary to get there just to get to a Bible study? Now he found out the Bible study is part of what they call the unregistered church in China. It's the underground church, which meant her attendance put her at risk. Owning a Bible put her at risk. But he says, how do you explain that? Except, what have we grown to worship? Here's another principle. Worship is this incredible, expansive, glorious privilege and opportunity. There's times it fills our emotions and we're so full. There's times it violates our sensibilities and it's painful. There's times it creates a sense of urgency that right now, here's the only thing that's important in my life. But we have to understand that it is this incredible, expansive, glorious privilege and opportunity. 
Another principle, worship is about the possibilities of God and not the probabilities of us. We have to understand that worship is the safest place for sinful people to go to God. Amen? What I think we need today is the courage to ask God to inspect our hearts for anything that is not like him. I think we have to do that on an individual level. All those little mini temples laying around Israel that distract us away from the temple of the true God. I think we also need to ask it at GBC level, this church level. I think we need the courage See, we live in this very PC culture. Today, people are offended at someone or something at every turn. And have you noticed it paralyzes our relationships based on what might happen and what someone might say or do? And how many times do we sit there and say, well, we can't do that because here's what might happen. This past week, I don't know if you read this story, Georgian, a middle school in Georgia, a girl was written up called a level one offense and they showed a picture of this in the news her crime get this she hugged another student who was crying to comfort her the school defended itself and here's what the school wrote by the way they have a no touch policy in their entire school you cannot touch for any reason on any level at any time here's what they wrote as a response it was printed the purpose of this policy is not to take away affection compassion or empathy I sat there and said, really? (laughs) If the school allowed physical contact of any form, it creates situations that are not appropriate at school. Unfortunately, there's no way the school staff can constantly police the kids to determine what hug is innocent or inappropriate touch. The best policy then is to forbid touching of any kind. I said, wow. I mean, that's what PC culture has done. By the way, if you happen to go up to our Discover Recovery class, we will violate that every time. (laughs) But you know what's happened today? Culture is so sexualized touch. The culture of accusation and litigation. People have the power to destroy someone's life based on an accusation. And so we just say, you know what? We're not going to do this anymore. And we need the courage to be the church. If we think about all the possibilities of us, we will freeze. We will not move a step. If we think about the possibilities of God, it will give us freedom. So let's, during this Christmas season, let's have the courage to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's have the courage to tear down the temples of our culture. Let's have the courage to simplify, to live out Christ. Let's have the courage to embrace our world with the love of God who came in flesh, who was born of a virgin, who was crucified for the sins of the world, who rose again from the dead, who's coming back to set everything right. Here's my heart for GBC. There's a lot of reasons why people are attracted to church. They may talk about the music, the kids' ministry, the youth, social reasons, particular teacher, the building itself. But here's my heart for GBC. There's this intuitive sense that when people walk through our doors, that this is a place where God is worshipped. That there's this place where the mysterious nature of God at work 
exists and they can sense it, they can see it, they can smell it. People are drawn to his son and not to us. This is a place where the spirit of God is transforming minds and hearts. This is a place that allows the mess of humanity to gather and cry out to God. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to sing a reprise of the new song that they taught you just before the sermon. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray for you. And then we are going to sing that he shall reign forevermore. Father God, may we worship fully you and you alone. May we celebrate this Christmas season with our hearts set to an audience of one that allows your love just to embrace us. And then we reach out and embrace this world. May we be that kind of light. And we pray these things in your name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.